Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talk to a man whose name is Bradley Jay. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in. To see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. It's WBZ, Jay talking, live midnight to five. Thanks for being with us. And thanks to Stephanie Sharo for being with us. Stephanie has a number of books she's been in prior. Talk about fires. But tonight we're going to talk about the Brinks robbery. Crime of the century. Oh, Brinks Roberts stole millions in the hearts of Boston. Boston. Yes. <laughs> There's a sticker over the title, so I can't see <laughs> yes, it. Sorry. <laughs> so thanks for coming in. This is always interesting to me. I think it's interesting to everybody. This stuff. First, why are we so? Why am I so interested in this? And why are others seemingly so interested in this type of thing? Well, first of all, thanks for having me back, yeah. and and I love talking about this yes. this this story because it just has so many different threads and it goes in all different places but we are fascinated with the brinks i mean today most people will um i start out my lectures about it by saying how many people have heard of the brinks they have how many people know that the money from the brinks was never found most of it was never found everyone raises their hand i said how many people here want to know where the money is and everybody raises their hand and that so there's a number of reasons why the brinks is just so popular it was. It really was the perfect crime. Um, first of all, the most important thing is, it was the largest um, armed robbery in U.S. history at the time. Uh, no one was hurt. I can't underscore that enough. This was pulled off without. They had guns, but not a shot was fired. No one got. No one got hurt. No, maybe the guards got a little roughed up, but really, they were um, actually they were treated quite politely by some of the robbers who um, tied them up, said, oh, I need to take your glass. May I take your glasses? <laughs> and tied them up. But it was, and then there were so many, um, there's so many mysteries still lingering. And the biggest is most of the money has never been found. So people are still looking for it. Um, so it's just one of those things that captures the imagination. And, you know, and it's funny because the robbers wore masks that covered their faces. And that has been a theme in other movies about Boston crimes, if anyone's seen The Town, yep. Yep, they wore masks, the horrible mask all over their heads. Uh, the Friends of Eddie Coyle wore masks all over their heads. So it's kind of it's kind of like there's this mask. Is that mask. a Boston thing? I think it's a Boston thing. It's, it started with the Brinks. It's a mask motif that we have given to the world. The so Brinks is a long time ago, 1950? 1950, January 17th, 1950. All right, so this is a good story. We have lots of time. Let's go through the Brinks robbery in detail, okay. as, as much 
as granular as you can get. Granular as you can. Well, let me set the stage by, um, first of all, uh, putting Boston in, in perspective in January 17, 1950. Uh, things were, it was very kind of a bad economically for the city. Things were kind of, um, there wasn't a lot of industry. It was kind of, the city was on a decline. And the Brinks was a money-moving company. Um, and it was considered the best, uh, the most secure place to move your money. If you put your stuff with Brinks, like your money or your valuables, they were supposed to defend it with your lives. That was their reputation, okay? And um, so and the Brinks is still around today. You still see the Brinks trucks. Anyway, they had a headquarters on uh, a building that's still there, they get, still there today, the North Terminal Garage. I think they call it the North Station or the North um, End Garage right now. But um, it was a, it's this big kind of hulking building at the corner of Commercial and Prince Street. Uh, and the Brinks had their headquarters on the second floor. And what that meant that they were moving money all the time. And so they'd move money in, they move money out, and they kept it in that place, in that second floor vault, in a very secure vault, uh, in between moves. And the other thing I've got to mention about this time in, in Boston, why, why you'll never have another Brinks. You just won't have it because we don't live in a cash society now. You know, who cares cash? You know, it's all credit card. Whatever. I do. Yeah, well. Do you? You're, you're, you don't at all? I've started to not carry cash. Because all the kids, none of the kids carry cash. So I, I'm trying to be young. I did that. <laughs> and then I found I was spending too much money. And, <laughs> and I also didn't yeah. like getting this big, massive scroll <laughs> of charges. Right, I, I like right. To, it's, I'd rather pay as I go and keep it simple and get us right. a... More manageable scroll of charges that I can actually remember. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. So as an aside, yeah. some I'm, maybe they'll go back to cash. Maybe they go. But in that time, there everything was in cash, and when you got paid, your paycheck was in cash. They yeah, give wow. you a they give you a envelope with your pay in cash. Wow. And so Brinks was in charge of moving the payroll. For a lot of big co companies, including General Electric, and um, uh, there was manufacturing, there's a sugar plant that they moved the money for. So they were in charge of a lot of cash that was flowing around the city, just like like today the wires are crossing, but they had actual cash. And this caught the uh, eye of a guy named Tony Pino, who was a kind of a career criminal. He had gotten in trouble very uh, early as a, as a kid, and... Um, he he was it was kind of funny because he was actually born in Italy and so he was always in danger of being being um, sent back to Italy even though he came when he was two months old, so he'd commit a crime he'd get in trouble threaten to go back he'd have to raise money pay his lawyers so he'd have to go out and commit more crimes blah 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 blah, but anyway he thought that he had the mother load he was going to rob the Brinks, in the um, headquarters, and he spent six or seven months scouting it out. Just hanging around. I've I've walked where he walked. I've I've walked because you can walk up Snow Hill Avenue and you can look down the bricks. I mean, it it's built on a hill, so uh, Cops Hill Burial Ground is right nearby. So it's a very historic place. But the the garage itself is on the Freedom Trail, so it's in a very historic location. Now this was all before the Freedom Trail, but but Tony checked it all out. Do you do Brinks tours? Pardon me. Do you do a Brinks tour? I used tour? to do a I, – I may go back to doing a Brinks tour. I take people around the area, and we talk about it, and I have visual aids. And we, you, can, you can actually walk 
you can walk the steps of where the you can walk actually with what the robbers did. It's almost the same configuration of how they pulled it off. It's still pretty much the same. Pretty today. much the same. So you can I have pictures of before and after. So so Tony decides to gather his crew and he gathered this crew of people um, around him were some of the um, uh, best known thieves and they were known to the police in Boston. So he had his brother-in-law Vinnie Costa. He had um, a guy named Jim Affairty who was known to to have crime, uh, to commit a lot of crimes. I got another Min- Michael Vincent Gagan, a guy named Sandy Richardson, who was, well, good friends with them. Uh, Henry Baker, Barney Bainfield. Barney Bainfield's from Charlestown. And when I give a talk in Charlestown, I say, here's your Charlestown guy. Everyone applauds. Yeah. Yeah, because that's, uh, that's Charlestown. Um, a guy named Joe McGinnis, who owned a bar in Eggleston Square, and he was going to launder the money. Because the, the problem with robbing big robbies, you got to launder the money. You just can't go out and spend it. You get caught. Um, and he also pulled in a guy named Jazz Maffey, Adolph Jazz Maffey. Maffey was a respectable guy because he was a bookkeeper, and everyone knew him. And I, I talked to a reporter who, who found, when he found out he was involved with the Brinks, he said, I can't believe it because he's respectable. He's a book, bookie. So he would go around and collect all the bets. And, but he was pulled in, and a guy named Stanley Gashora was pulled in, and, of course, Joseph James O'Keefe, Specky O'Keefe. Now, let me point something up about Specky. this. Specky. Specky. He was called Specky. There's a lot of. It's not because of his glasses. It's because um, he grew up in South Boston, and he'd beg for old uh, bananas. He'd give me the ones with the specks on them. The old oh. bananas you couldn't sell because they're they were poor. They all grew up poor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the thing about this, you'll see, there's Irish, Italian. Henry Baker is Jewish, who was brought in because he was an expert. Uh, Gashore was Polish, I believe. So it was a United Nations of crime, and you know it was diverse. Diversified. It was diverse. It was diversity before right. it's mandated. And the thing people say is, was this a mafia crime? Was it an organized crime? Organized crime, kind of like a like a Costa Nostra, and not really because you had these different groups. They're all involved, and Tony kind of organized, and everybody had what they're going to do um, that evening. But here's the quirk, quirk. Here's one of the more unusual things about the Brinks robbery: is Tony Pino knew that it would need split second timing to go in to this place because. He got into it. He broke it when, when he, he got in because he, he, he could break into anything. So he got in one night and looked around and realized the guards would leave. They'd lock all the money in the safe, and then they'd take off, and there'd be nobody in the, what they called the counting room. For how long? Until uh, the next morning. Really? They closed up around 7 o'clock because he watched it. See, the thing about the Brinks, and you can see this today. If you go to, if you go to um, Commercial Street, if you go to Prince Street, I'm sorry, and you walk up, there's this playground right next to the north end. And there's huge windows there. And you can look right in. And you can see how Tony Pino spied on them from the buildings around. And he could see right into what went on. So he knew exactly the timing of it. So he knew that they could, um, you knew exactly the time to go in. Right at seven, right before 7 o'clock, just before they locked the vault, they'd go in there, get the money, and get out. Of there. Now, here's the thing. This is where Tony's brilliance came in, is that he could break in, and they could put a jimmy the locks all the way through. There were like five doors from the outside. What they were going to do was come in on the door on Prince Street, go up the stairs to the second floor, go through a series of 
of doors to the counting room, surprise the guards, and get the money. Now, he, he, but he realized you, you just can't be jimming locks. It takes too long. So what he did was on a successive evenings, he broke in, he took the whole lock cylinder out of the door, oh. put in a dummy, he rushed over to a locksmith and had a key made. So he had keys to all the doors wow. in the thing so he could go in. So what happened is when they, they, were, they were practicing it, they would go in there at night. The whole gang would go in there at 7 o'clock after the guards had left, and they just go in there. The thing is, why didn't they just go in, get the money when there were no guards there? And that's yeah. because the vault was so securely. Oh. Um, they couldn't. They thought about blowing it up. Too much they, of a hassle. Too much. They, they had actually, to have the guards. They, they actually it. stole um, the the. They found the um, records for the for the vault, and they stole it from another from a security office. Found it couldn't work, and they went and put it back. <laughs> it broke back. In. It was I mean, just too secure. Too secure. So. They had to be there when the when the um, the door was open. So so they practiced going in and out, and they were in and out a lot. I mean, that's what the funny thing is. They weren't just there that night; they were there on other nights, uh, checking it out. So, but the night of the robbery, they knew there was going to be a big haul there. So they planned it. They're right before seven o'clock. Uh, Vinnie Costa was up on a building on Prince uh, Prince Street. He signaled them, and what they did, they, dro they were dropped off at the top of Snow Hill. They walked down through the parking, uh, through the, there's a stairway that goes into the playground. They got to the bottom of the playground, and they put on their costumes, which was a, there were seven of them actually went up into the, into the, um, into the, the Brinks uh, building. They put on full masks that covered their heads back and forth. Not just on the face, but the whole whole thing. Um, they put on chauffeurs' caps, and they had uh, army pea coats on, or army like army navy. Sorry, navy style pea coats. So they all looked alike. They looked like chauffeurs almost. And so at the right moment, when just before the vault was closed, they get the signal. They go up into the through the doors, opening all the doors. Get to the back. The only thing they had to do there was a wire. Um, kind of a mesh fence, slightly fence, that separated them from the guards. So they had to put up their guns and say, open up the, the fence or we'll blow your head off or whatever. The guards very wisely said, oh, okay. We, they opened up. They quickly tied up the guards, took their glasses, took their guns, um, so they couldn't see anything, yep. took the money, rushed it down the stairs into a uh, special truck that they had uh, outfitted, Got all the because a lot of it was bulky. Got everything in, uh, and then took off. Any idea how long it took to get the money down? It was there? about fifteen minutes. They did about they one did, trip, but they did no. They did in several trips. It was like they did several trips down, but the whole robbery took about fifteen to twenty minutes. It was not very. Man, long. they must have been so. They were just they were cooking. That's why things happened. Like they left a lot of money there. They left a lot of money on the floor. Uh, some Specky dropped his hat, so that was a big clue. Um, when the, was it only cash? They, no, they got securities. They took. They just grabbed everything. I mean, they grabbed a lot of securities, like some um, written checks and things like that that they couldn't do anything with. Yeah. But they just they were in a rush. They had to get everything out, so they got everything they could, and they took off. And then uh, the police came, the FBI came, the press came. The press came right up into the vault room, and and I've had several people tell me. 
that there was money about a foot thick on the ground. And one of the reporters said, if they left that much, they left that much, they must have gotten away with a lot. You've t- you spoke to reporters that oh, actually yeah. saw this yeah, money? Eddie, uh, and, uh, yeah. yeah, one of the reporters and uh, a photographer whose father, in fact, John Landers of the Herald, who, who just recently passed away, but his father was a photographer at the scene. And he talked about coming home and saying to his wife, I wish I had gum on the bottom of my shoes because yeah, wow. I would have walked home with that. So um, they... They grabbed it all, and and then, and see, they they left only tape. There were no fingerprints because they wore gloves. There was only a few clues at the scene. Did they speak? The tape. Yes, they did talk. They did speak because they said things like, "Put your hands up," and then when they were tying people up, one of them said, "May I take your glasses?" Which was kind of a weird thing, but he just yanked their glasses. Um, and so, so everyone was looking for clues. Why was there one chauffeur's cap left? Was it a sign? Because they had no idea who these people were. Now, it took about two months, and the police pretty much figured out who it was, but they couldn't figure out how they did it. How they, well. How they pull it off. How did they figure out who it was? Because they, they you know, Boston's a small town. They kind of knew all the, they knew all the cops. They knew all the, the robbers. They knew these people. They knew, say, Specky O'Keefe, they figured he was someone involved. They sort of suspected Tony Pino. They did not suspect Jazz Maffey. They and um, Joe McGinnis was known as a guy who laundered money, but they set up their alibi so well. One of the guys got himself arrested that night, spent the night in jail. Great alibi. Another guy, w- when he got to McGinnis, he knew there'd be a cop there, and he asked McGinnis what time it is. And McGinnis said, made the time about half hour earlier, so it mixed up. They had perfect alibis. Uh, Sandy Richardson went home, fell asleep on the couch. Um, and even and his son testified he was there all night, but he, he hadn't been, which is another kind of sad story. Anyway, um, Barty Bainfield was a getaway driver. Vinnie Costa was a lookout guy. Um, they got away with it. They split up the money. They agreed not to be showy about it. There was no agreement to wait till the till – the, um, Statue of limitations ran The out. rumor was, the myth is that yeah. that was the case, but no, there wasn't. No, they just, they, they didn't think that far How do you ahead. know? You can uh, tell me the, the how do you know part later or now, but you have all these details about who did what. I mean, did this come out in court or? Came, no, it came, it came out a little bit in court, but after, um, see, they found the guys guilty and a number of them died in jail, but a lot of them got out. Tony Pino got out. He was the last guy to get out. So in the 1970s, he told his story to a guy named Noel Ben, who wrote the book uh, Big Stick Up at Brinks, and that produced the movie um, The Brinks Job. What was the name of the book? Uh, Big Stick Up at Brinks, I think it was called. But it became The Brinks Job. That's a big thing. It became the movie The Brinks Job. He wrote it as kind of a screenplay. Anyways, a screenplay writer. There was actually a movie earlier called um, uh, Six Bridges to Cross, which starred Tony Bennett. um, Wow. You know, as Tony Pino. So... Stephanie Shero continues now talking about the Brinks job. We're here because she has the book and knows all about it. The Brinks, the crime of the century, how the Brinks robbers stole millions and the hearts of Boston. And the my most recent question was, how do we know? What all these details, and that's where you left off giving right, us that right. info. Well, a lot of it, there's a number of sources. First of all, newspapers had a lot of material. 
And afterwards, after the, a lot of the robbers ha- wrote, um, did tell-all books. They didn't write them, but they, but they told them to people. So Specky O'Keefe's talked to someone who wrote a book. Uh, uh, Tony Pino and um, let's see, Vinnie Costa and Sandy Richardson um, uh, talked to the um, author and old Ben. So they gave a lot of details that was were not available. And it kind of jived with what we, we know in the police reports. I mean, I've seen several layers of this because I've been through all the police re- what what are left of the police reports and their speculation and then the newspaper speculation, which was um, odd. I mean, uh, Eddie Corsetti, that was a reporter who I talked to, Ed Corsetti, said that the editor after this robbery, I mean, it was headlines around the world. It was this big robbery. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was trying to solve it. And his editor got up on the desk and says, I want a story every day. I don't care where you get the facts. I don't care. I want a story every day. I want as many stories as you can because this is big. So he would go out and they would glean whatever little details they could um, and make them into stories. And a lot of them were kind of false, but they're little bits of realism in all of them. I mean, they they kind of figured out that the robbers were able to get in pretty easily. And really, the person who got the black eye in all this was Brinks. Brinks was supposed to be this impregnable place. Brinks was supposed to be the place where you could safely store your money. And here these guys waltzed in to the Brinks and got away with the biggest haul in history. So the Brinks um, was was the one that really uh, came out looking pretty poorly. And the thing about, you asked a question earlier, why do we like criminals? And, and I'm not sure we like criminals, but we loved these criminals because this was done so well. It was the perfect job, and it was done in Boston. And there was a sort of perverse pride in it. And again, no one was hurt. It was done perfectly. No shots were fired. And who did they steal from? Not the local church, not the grocer. They stole from the Brinks company. Insurance covers it. And the Brinks, who were stupid enough to have a bad system. So nobody yeah. felt sorry for Brinks. I mean, Brinks. on the one hand, we admire, well, we used to admire honesty, fair play, character, yeah. none of which, you know, these criminals are stealing other people's stuff. That's mm-hmm. that's cheating. So it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, in the long run, here's, here's the interesting thing. I think it was Sandy Richardson. He worked as a longshoreman. And um, he was, he, he, all the robbers were caught uh, eventually. And the only reason they were caught is because Spex O'Keefe thought he was being cheated out of his money. So he turned evidence. He was the one who put them in jail. So he was kind of the turncoat. But Sandy Richardson said, because um, he spent a long time in jail, wrote a novel in jail, interestingly enough. It's not been published, but he wrote a novel. But he came out and he calculated that the money that they eventually got from the Brinks would not cover the years he spent in jail. If he just had worked as a longshoreman, he would have come out ahead. Because the guys, we wonder where the money is, and it seems like they spent it little by little. They sort of frittered it away because they didn't, they didn't know what to do. I mean, a lot of them tried to invest in something. It all went bust. Um... Some of them got new homes, new cars, but a lot of them never enjoyed it. Um, Stanley Gashura, for example, hid his money somewhere, and then he went on a trip with um, with Spex O'Keefe. They went off um, to get out of town. It was right after the robbery. So what happened was they had their share, which is about you know a hundred thousand each, roughly. You'd, 
out of this. And there is some cheating going on in terms of the dividing it. How much is that in today's money? Do you know? Um, well, the well, I don't. I let me think. I know that the the it was like two point five million dollars that was stolen in cash. That would be twelve million dollars today. Okay. So if you can imagine that. How many people were there? And there were eleven people who got a certain so amount. So million of bucks it. each. Of yeah. In today's like money. Yeah. Roughly, I think they got a little less than that because part of it was they had to throw away money that the serial numbers were known because what happened was that they knew the serial numbers of some of the bills, and they newspapers all over the all over the city printed um, lists with those numbers. So people were looking at their bills to see if it matched the serial numbers there. So they had to go through all the money to see if it had a serial number that serial had been printed in the that, paper yeah, yeah. and then throw it away? And then throw it. Well, they're supposed to throw it or away. Or launder it. They were supposed to throw it away. And there, therein lies the tale uh, because um, I'm sort of getting distracted here, but um, the the only money of the Brinks that has been recovered was recovered um, when a gentleman in Baltimore tried to pass some old bills, and someone thought they were counterfeit. So they were arrested, and they found that he had money. He said he found it somewhere. It was not true. He found, and it was the only money. They could match it to the serial numbers. That's the only money from the Brinks. It was about $50,000 that was found. And the rest of it was found in um, the South End uh, where it had been hidden, and it had been buried. They could tell from the condition of the bills that it had been buried. So it was supposed to be destroyed, but someone, instead of destroying it, buried it. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So they found these bills with the dangerous serial numbers the serial. buried. Do yes. you know exactly where? Uh, in the South End? Uh, yes. It was on Tremont Street. Um, uh, let's see. One of those. I, I can picture it. seems it. kind of busy to be burying a giant thing of no, money. No, no. It wasn't buried. No, no. It had been buried somewhere. Then it had been un and taken up. And it was taken. And they found it in a cooler behind oh. a, a false wall. Oh in this business that was run by a guy named Fats Busilli and a guy named Wimpy Bennett. Wimpy was his nickname. Edward right. Wimpy Bennett, that was his nickname. Now, the thing about Fats Busilli, um, they were really tied into, he, he died in a hail of blood, and the Bennett brothers were tied to um, Steve the Rifleman Fleming, and some of their bodies were found in the whole Whitey Bulgers thing. So there's sort of a thread in the brinks that leads to Whitey and, well, through um, Steve the Rifleman Fleming. Now we're getting into real mob history stuff. So anyway, the point being, that was the only money that was ever found. Can, can you yes. tell this little side story of Fats dying in a hail of bullets? Fats Busilli was um, a, he was convicted, he was actually convicted in the, uh, Brinks robbery. He and Wimpy Bennett had to serve some time for that. And they weren't the primary people, but they had some terms of time. But he got out, and I think a judge said, oh, he's not long for the world, because he just wasn't so involved. And then they, they found him in a car, just oh. riddled, riddled with bullets. What was the longest amount of time that, I guess Tony served the longest? He got How out much in 19... Time? Let's see. He, he went in in 
1956 was the trial. So he went in in 1956, and he got out in uh, about 1977, 78. 22 years. Yeah, yeah, he spent a long time there. Um, okay. And, you know, and they also, see, they had to spend time in Walpole, and then they had to, they actually in the Deer Island prison because they had, there were some other charges, so they, they had to, it gets complicated what happened to them. But they, but Tony served the longest time. He finally got out, and then he decided to cash in, so he sat down with Noel Ben, probably got some money for it, told his story. He also was really pissed off that Specky was going around telling people that he thought of the robbery. And Tony wanted to set, or that Joe McGinnis had planned it all. So Tony wanted, didn't want the credit taken no, away. No, he wanted, he wanted the credit, and so he had this, so he had this long story, much of which might have been a little bit exaggerated. But Tony Pino was quite the character. I mean, he was, he was apparently very funny. He could tell a story. He could keep people in stitches. He was a very good cook, uh, but he had a real dark side to him, a very dark side to him. Um, and he was, he did not, the other thing about Tony, he was overweight. He was very fat. So he stood guard. He did not go up in the vault room. He did not do a lot of running up no, and downstairs. No, the reason was if he went up and they saw a fat man, oh, they, right. they would have tied it to Pino right away. So he stayed downstairs. And the reason, uh, is the other reason, he was a material, the reason they had those full uh, masks that over their, went over their heads, which were incidentally Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr., the male versions, by the way, that went over their heads, is because one of his buddies got convicted because someone saw the back of his uh, the his friend's head and was able to identify him by the color of the hair in the back of the head. So he said, oh, "We're not doing that. We're putting the masks all over the head this time." Wow. So that's what I'm saying. The, there was this feeling that this was really well executed, a really great crime, and people were were very intrigued with it. And people thought about these robbers as spending their time in. Um, the Bahamas or in the Caribbean, and they must have, I mean, none of them left New England. They all stayed here. They continued to work. They continued to commit crimes. You That's, think they did it for, yeah. for the money or, or for the adventure? I guess the money. No, they did it for the money. I mean, I don't think they were thinking of the adventure. I think, it, I don't think they realized well, how big a crime it would be. I, I think they, they didn't realize that it would be the crime of the century. I think they just thought of it as another big robbery. In fact, the morning, the morning that they were going to commit the robbery, Specky and Gus robbed a um, hotel in the area um, and okay. got away from it. They just wanted money. They were just, they're criminals. And Tony had threw a fit. He said, why are you doing this short-time robbery? Tonight we're going to do the Brinks. Why are you doing this? But, um, so, they they were weird. (laughs) We have uh, Michael in Attleboro wants to chime in, Stephanie. So, hi, Mike. Hi, Hi, uh, great subject. I just wanted to mention, uh, is it Stephanie? Yes, hi. Mm -hmm. Hi, uh, I grew up in Eggleston Square, and we used to hear oh, stories yeah. about it. Oh, but uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of my relatives knew, knew Maffey, and uh, in fact, his brother painted my grandmother's house. He never finished it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was the old story of he gave him the money and they never came back. The odd thing was he left about four grand worth of staging. There. Oh, that's funny. Never came back for it. But anyway, I'm curious of the name of the bar. Was it by chance... Uh, uh, it just popped in my head now. Was it by chance Carol's? The bar? No, it was uh, J J C J A's Cafe. J A Cafe. That's the one that Joe McGinnis ran in Eggleston. And then okay, Tony cause... Pino had a diner nearby. Maybe that was what oh. you're talking. Yeah. 
Well, no, no. Carol's just ran on my uh, just now. Just popped uh. in my head for some reason. But the JA was where we went to the movies, and the JA smoke shop was mm-hmm. there. And we'd go in there, even back then buy candy because we knew it was so expensive in the movie theater. Yeah, you know, back in the fifties. But right, uh, right. yeah, we always heard the stories and uh, and all that stuff. But uh, uh, so maybe that bar must. I think I know exactly where the bar was now, but. I, I don't remember the name of it. I mean, well, it was it probably one... was closed after it was probably closed by 1956 uh, because uh, oh, okay. was in jail. But the JA Cafe, no, he ran that. It was a, they called it a cafe, but it was a bar. And right. uh, there's a lot of stories about you know, how he used to water the liquor, or he'd have a still, and he tried to avoid paying taxes on it. He, he was he was uh, he was a character. Oh, okay, because the smoke shop was there when when I was growing up. It sold newspapers that... and mm-hmm. and uh, and the and I remember now. I didn't know it at the time. The JA stood for cigars, and it was a little sign up. We was always you know go to the JA to get candy. Thanks, Mike. But, okay, thanks. That's cool because oh, thank you. So yeah, ties. That's a living being that ties the past with the present. Mm-hmm. That's cool. You have a a lot of photos here. It is the radio, but uh, I think I can glean some value from these uh, they're they're cool photos first they're all encased in plastic and they're on ring binders you have a picture here of the uh, playground mm-hmm. it just looks also 50s and back at the time right in front of the, the brinks building there was the elevated railway mm-hmm. which is gone now mm-hmm. this, but the brinks building still there and still looks the same still there still looks the same uh, i go over there a lot you can park there if you walk inside, you can walk. Well, they don't, they don't like this, but I, I but I've been there a number of times. And you walk up to the second floor, you can walk to the spot where the Brinks uh, headquarters was. It's all gone. There's nothing left. I've I've walked through there trying to figure out where where things were. You can kind of figure it out because of the placement of the windows, the big windows. Um, but there's really nothing left of of that uh, of of the headquarters there. But you can use your imagination. I mean, you can you can actually walk down the stairs that the robbers took. You can walk around the building. You can really get a sense of where it was. And that playground. It's interesting because they used to call it the gassy because the building had something to do with uh, the first gas refinery or something in Boston. So the so and they they were still calling it that because people would say, oh yeah, it's down by the gassy, and I'm like. The okay. gassy meaning the playground? Yeah, I mean the playground. is like, okay, well, that's another Boston term I haven't heard. The gassy. But, yeah, gassy. But anyway. Some um, of these photos are in the book. Yes, a lot of them in the book. There's a picture of Codman Square Key Shop, Master now, Locksmiths. Yeah, that's not in the book. I think that's uh, something I got. But the that is where Tony went to get the keys made that um, got him into the building. So he'd rush over to Codman Square, get the key. With the lock cylinder, have the keys made, rush back, put the lock cylinder back in the door, and then he had the keys to the whole place. You have a diagram here that there's their pathway mm-hmm. through those doors to the counting room, et cetera. And a lot of photos that are both, some are actual crime photos and some are reenactments. They, they reenacted right. it. Yeah. Uh, they put people... They tied up people after the fact and put them down where they were had been tied before. Yeah. Why, why? Why would they do I that? I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. It's very funny because those were in the police archives, and I, I don't know why they recreated it like that and took photos. And those photos are, are widely publicized. Actually, they're they're around. Um, 
But I think they were just trying to to get a sense of how this crime was committed. I mean, they looked at blueprints. I mean, the FBI was involved. J. Edgar Hoover took a personal interest in this case. He really, and, and there was a lot of feeling that it could be could have been communist agents before they figured out it was these robbers. And so a lot of people came up with these theories that it was uh, the Russians. Damn those Russians! They're still interfering with us. But they they apparently there was this feeling that they may have came in and um, committed the robbery because you know it was the height of the Cold War. Yeah. And there was that feeling about that. You have a picture of these Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr. <laughs> mask. They're really creepy. They are. They kind of look. Folks, if you picture Clark Kent, the real original Clark Kent in a rubber mask, it's kind of like that little yeah. curl of hair. But, you know, that weird masky. That's why they look. were so startling. I mean, if can you imagine you're doing your work and all of a sudden there's seven men and you're not sure how many, but there's all these people all dressed alike with these horrible masks pointing guns at you and saying, open the store or no one will get hurt. Of course you open the door because a lot of the guards are faulted for opening that door. But right. they they felt they felt they had to do it, and they made the right decision because no one was hurt. Only thing left at the scene, evidence-wise, some rope and the chauffeur's cap. And there's right. some speculation some, that the chauffeur cap was left on purpose. There was a lot of feeling about that. In fact, I that chauffeur's the FBI still has that chauffeur's cap, and I went to the FBI headquarters because the guy who was interested in the Brinks, and I went to, and I got to hold the yeah, chauffeur's cap. Yeah, I saw a picture cap. in a book. Yeah. yeah. I put it on, actually. He didn't like that, but it didn't fit. <laughs> now, finally, it says, no hub gangster is smart enough. So they, they thought. <laughs> I so, love or, or that One headline. of the stories yeah. that they, yeah. Joseph Deneen did, Joseph, they had to gin up a lot of stories, yeah. saying, nobody in Boston smart enough. This has to be a New York thing. Right, right. Joe Deneen um, is an amazing uh, journalist. He wrote, He's written a number of books about Boston. I, I wish I could have met him. I, he's long gone. But he wrote about the Brinks robbery he knew Tony Pino personally. Before the Brinks was solved, he wrote a, a book about it that was um, uh, that was made into the film Six Bridges Across, and um, s starring Tony Bennett. It was just this amazing. Um, I gotta find that. You can find it. It's it's. I, I've got a copy of it. You can get it. Buy it online. I wonder. Yeah. I wonder if it's streamable anywhere. Maybe not. I don't know. It's a black and white movie. It's no black and white movie. Wow. So, um, okay. Well, the time's up, and this is great, great, great. We will, folks. We will. This will be a podcast, and uh, we'll be able. If you'd like to share it, Stephanie, you certainly can. And uh, if you only heard part of this, you may want to hear the whole thing. Because, by my reckoning, it was really great. Come back soon, Stephanie. Thank you very much. I really enjoy this. And did you like your coffee? Was it helpful? Coffee was great. All I'm, right. I'm, I'm buzzing now. All right. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.